Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Problem of Evil and the Providence of God, Our Gray and Dappled World. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 11, 2009. During his last two years of college at Princeton, the American political philosopher John Rawls considered studying for the Episcopal priesthood. But that was before he fought in World War II as an infantryman and saw Hiroshima after it had been bombed. Before he heard a Lutheran pa pastor preach that God used Allied weapons to kill the Japanese and protected the Allies from the enemy's bullets. A friend died in the war. And after the war, Rawls was deeply shaken to learn about the Holocaust. The war made Rawls doubt any connection between human prayer and divine providence. He wrote, How could I pray and ask God to help me, or my family, or my country, or any other cherished thing I care about, when God would not save millions of Jews from Hitler? In the end, Rawls lost his Christian faith. He found it impossible to reconcile the perfect will of God with the brutal realities of human history. Rawls' crisis mirrors Job's famously bitter complaint. Job longs to plead with God, to state his case before him, and to protest his unjust suffering. He knows that God is righteous and that he would hear the cry of an innocent person. But there's just one problem. He can't find God and he doesn't know where to look for him. Job searches up, down, left, and right, but God feels absent and he feels abandoned. We read in Job 23, 8, and 9, If I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. Using his spiritual compass to detect some hint of divine activity, Job can't determine the true north of God's presence in human history. <clears throat> In his book, God's Universe, from 2006, the Harvard astronomer Owen Gingrich calls experiences like these, quote, questions without answers, end quote. He includes an example of his own. When Gingrich was 17, his only brother was killed by a car while delivering newspapers on his bike. Decades later, in one of the last entries in his diary, Gingrich's devout Mennonite father still agonized over why God would allow such a tragedy to befall his teenage son. Similarly, in his book, The Language of God, 2006, Francis Collins, head of the Human Genome Project, writes about his daughter's rape and how it challenges his faith even today. Why did God not intervene? To protect his daughter? Why was the perpetrator never caught 
and brought to justice. Whereas Rawls lost his faith, Gingrich and Collins did not. They held fast in their Christian confession. Forfeiting your faith does nothing to solve the problem of evil. The problem of evil remains for every person in every worldview. Some people have even argued that whereas the problem of evil is difficult to reconcile with believing in a good God, the problem of good becomes impossible when we don't. Our world is neither purely good nor only evil, neither all black nor all white. Rather, it contains black, white, and many shades of gray, much light and many shadows. Job's unjust suffering rightly troubles us, as do the 5.4 million deaths in the Congo War, or the billions of people who barely subsist on a few dollars per day and die because they lack clean water. But just as mysterious are human altruism, our unimaginably vast, complex, and finely tuned cosmos that gave rise to intelligent life that can in fact ask questions without answers. Similarly, human conscience and breathtaking beauty. In his poem, Pied Beauty, the English poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, 1844, to 1889, <clears throat> describes our world as dappled. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire coal chestnut falls, finches' wings, Landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plow, and all trades their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange. Whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how? With swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim. He fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. Hopkins senses God's presence even, or maybe even especially, in the dappled things. Things mottled as well as uniform, crooked as well as straight, things that are sour as well as sweet, blemished as well as beautiful, surprising as well as predictable, and yes, in things painful as well as pleasurable. God does act in our imperfect, irregular, dappled world, and in, in it also in our frail personal lives, but not always in the ways most obvious to our human perspective. This became excruciatingly clear to Owen Gingrich 
when he observes in Psalm 22 for this week, which centuries later Christians recounted hearing from the parched, cracked lips of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? In that horrendous cry of dereliction, though, in some mysterious way, God was in Christ, reconciling the dappled cosmos to himself. Thomas Aquinas gave us that startling phrase, O Felix Culpa, in reference to the fall of Adam. O fortunate crime. In other words, the fall of Adam is a blessing. Because sin and evil, however radical and ugly, are the occasion for something far greater. The incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God uses our sin, suffering, and even Satan himself for his purposes of goodness. So that St. Augustine writes, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to allow no evil to exist. Some people look at our dappled world and see only blind chance. In this view, humanity would seem to be an unimaginably lucky and glorious accident, resulting from 15 billion years of random events, void of any transcendent meaning or purpose. But such genuinely consistent atheism comes at a high cost. In his book, Nothing to be Frightened of, 2008, the British novelist and atheist Julian Barnes wonders whether he can honestly assign any meaning to his personal story, given his lack of belief in God. Does his life enjoy a genuine narrative? Or is it only a random sequence of events that ends with total extinction? Such that any and all meaning-making is what he admits is pure confabulation. But others follow Hopkins, and amidst the dappled shadows see God's action in human history. Christians have long found genuine comfort in this notion of God's providential care so well described by the Protestant reformer John Calvin back in the 16th century. Listen to Calvin. When that light of divine providence has once shone upon a godly man, he's then relieved and set free not only from the extreme anxiety and fear that were pressing him before, but from every care. For as he justly dreads fortune, so he fearlessly dares commit himself to God. His solace, I say, is to know that his heavenly Father so upholds all things in his power, so rules by his authority and will, so governs by his wisdom, that nothing can befall except he determine it. Whence, I pray you, do you have this never-failing assurance, but from knowing that, when the world appears to be aimlessly tumbled about, the Lord is everywhere at work, and from trusting that his work will be for your welfare. 
In short, if you pay attention, you will easily perceive that ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. God, as believers like Gingrich, Collins, Hopkins, and Calvin, understand God not merely as a cosmic other who flung the stars into space. He's not a what, but a who. A someone and not merely a something. A personal redeemer who loves us in what the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber called an I-thou relationship. The New Testament reading this week thus advises us that in Jesus we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted and tried in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For books this week, I review Ronald Numbers, editor. The title, Galileo Goes to Jail, and Other Myths About Science and Religion. Harvard University Press, 2009, 302 pages. The greatest myth in the history of science and religion, writes Ron Numbers, holds that they've been in a state of constant conflict. By myth, he means a claim that is false. The 25 authors of this book each write one chapter to, be, to debunk one particular myth. About half the authors are atheists or agnostics. Five are mainline Protestants. Two are evangelicals. One is Catholic. One is Jewish. One Muslim. One Buddhist and two hold what the editor calls other beliefs. So on the face of it, there's no axe to grind in this book, except for correcting the historical record. The military metaphor used to describe the relationship between science and the religion found its most polemical and influential expression in two books at the end of the 19th century. First, a History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom, 1896, by Andrew Dixon White, the first president of Cornell University. And secondly, John William Draper's History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science, 1874. Both books criticized religion for undermining scientific progress. Both were widely translated both are still in print today, and both are prime examples of myth-mongering. The conflict thesis holds sway in popular culture, the imagination of ordinary lay people, and on local school boards. But as the epigraphs that begin each chapter show, some of the most irresponsible myth-makers are our best scientists. 
Like Steven Weinberg repeating the trope that medieval Islamic culture was inhospitable to science, myth four. Or Stephen Gold insisting that creationism is only a local indigenous American phenomenon and not a global phenomenon, myth 24. But believers don't get a free pass either. Three chapters debunk myths that ostensibly support religion. The idea that Christianity gave birth to modern science, myth 9. That evolution is based upon circular reasoning myth 15, and that quantum physics demonstrates the truth of free will, myth 22. Some of these powerful myths are not just wrong, but convey the exact opposite of the truth. Like the myth that Isaac Newton believed in a mechanistic or clockwork cosmology, myth 13. Others seem so obvious that you would think that they don't need rebuttal. <clears throat> like the idea that the Scopes trial spelled defeat for anti-evolution forces, myth 20, or that modern science has secularized society, myth 25. I especially appreciated the reminder that medieval Catholicism did not impede science, but was probably the largest, single, and longest-term patron of science in history. The Jesuits, for example, were established in 1540, and by 1625 they had founded 450 colleges all across Europe. A few of the essays feel like special pleading. It might be technically correct that Galileo was not tortured and imprisoned, myth number eight, but reading about the Inquisition's gradations of torture was a depressing reminder of just how evil religion can be. Christians might reflect on the wisdom of St. Augustine. In his literal commentary on Genesis, he lamented the ignorance of some Christians regarding the natural world, such as, quote, the motion and orbit of the stars and even their size and relative positions, about the predictable eclipses of the sun and moon, the cycles of the years and seasons, about the kinds of animals, shrubs, stones, and so forth. Now it's a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an infidel to hear a Christian talking nonsense on these topics, and we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh it to scorn. Reading this book is a good first step in following Augustine's advice. The title, Galileo Goes to Jail. Editor, Ronald Numbers. For film this week, I review a documentary called It Might Get Loud from 2009. In his latest documentary, director David Guggenheim gathers three of the greatest guitarists of all time to interact with each other, to explain their craft, and to reflect on the remarkable trajectories of their personal stories. Jimmy Page, born in 1944, 
played with the Yardbirds and Led Zeppelin. He intended to study biology and, as he says in this film, quote-unquote, cure cancer. But early on, he got the music bug. He played his guitar at school recess so much that the teachers confiscated it. An initial stint as a studio session guitarist playing Muzak was so depressing that he vowed never to play the music of others. Edge, born in 1961, of U2, describes the note he saw on a high school bulletin board about starting a band. His fate, he reflects, could easily have been far different. And finally, Jack White, born in 1975, of the White Stripes, grew up the youngest of ten kids in a Hispanic section of Detroit. As a kid, he got rid of his bed to stuff two drum sets into his 7 by 7 bedroom. He slept on the floor. His apprenticeship as an upholsterer and acceptance to Catholic seminary turned out to be false starts to his true calling. Music lovers will revel in this film, as will anyone who's ever reflected on the true nature of authentic vocation. The title, It Might Get Loud, a documentary featuring, featuring Jimmy Page, Edge, and Jack White. Finally, for poetry this week, we've We've posted a poem by G.K. Chesterton. <clears throat> Chesterton lived from 1874 to 1936. The title of the poem, A Prayer in Darkness. This much, O heaven, if I should ever brood or rave, pity me not, but let the world be fed. Yea, in my madness, if I strike me dead, Heed you the grass that grows upon my grave. If I dare snarl between this sun and sod, Whimper and clamor, give me grace to own, In sun and rain and fruit in season shown, The shining silence of the scorn of God. Thank God the stars are set beyond my power, If I must travail in a night of wrath, Thank God my tears will never vex a moth, nor any curse of mine cut down a flower. Men say the sun was darkened, yet I had thought it beat brightly even on Calvary, and he that hung upon the torturing tree heard all the crickets singing and was glad. G. K. Chesterton, A Prayer in darkness. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 11th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.